Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond and the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom's here and we have a special first-time guest with us, Dr. Travis Foskey from the University of Arkansas. Travis, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tom, we are cranking out some podcasts. <laughs> I know we only do these once a week, but... In the last two days, this the, is seriously the, the fifth episode we're recording. The marathon recording session is... Um, wow. It'll it, make we, the holidays a little easier. That's the goal. Well, the editing will be difficult. I mean, you are getting paid per episode, aren't you? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I get paid by the hour, man. <laughs> <laughs> paid by the hour. I appreciate your contribution to my stipend. Which right now is hovering at zero. Yeah. So if you hadn't been listening to the last few episodes, Tom's brought that up just about every time. <laughs> I think I may have said it the first time that the producer of the podcast does not get paid very well. And Tom took it and ran with it. So I guess I backed my way into that. Tom, why don't you take just a second and introduce Travis. Well, don't you have to ask him your question well, first? Well, uh, no, I'm going to... Okay. You're going to circle back to that. Excellent. You okay. said it, I didn't. Fantastic. We'll come back to that, but just so folks know who Travis is, just take a second and introduce him. <clears throat> well, and I'll introduce him briefly, and then he can say some more, but you know, I, Travis is essentially my counterpart at the University of Arkansas, uh, and he is at the Lawn Oak station there east of Little Rock. Now, the nice thing about Travis is, and Travis is my go-to person when it comes to nematode issues, but Travis, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what your role is at the University of Arkansas? Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to interject first. So, Travis, you can blame your good buddy Tom for this particular podcast question because Tom and I talked about this yesterday. He didn't really act like he wanted to answer it, so I thought, well, Uh-oh. that's a good enough reason to ask it. Great. I'm going to modify it slightly, get a little bit more specific. What is the all-time greatest action movie? Oh, man. You know what just popped in my head? And, and boy, I'm really going to have to go back. Lone Wolf McClay. Have either of you seen that? I have. It's been a while. Couldn't tell you much about it now, but I do recall seeing it. So Chuck Norris was, what was he, I guess a sheriff or a, a marshal or something. And he had this uh, Bronco truck with this super powered engine in it. And uh, of course he was somewhere along the Texas border or something. I, I don't know why that popped in my head. If you ask me that again, Lone Wolf McQuaid would not come up, but I guarantee you, you'd really have to get to uh, some older listeners to really pick that up. So probably nobody knows about that movie. That's a strong answer. I wouldn't have thought about that. <laughs> I probably would have picked one from the 90s. Tom, you've had about 30 seconds to think about it. I, I Fire would away. pick one from the 90s or a little bit newer than that. I'd either say Die Hard or The Rock. Either of those, I think, are pretty spectacular. <laughs> Man, I want to say Die Hard was in the 80s, the first Die Hard. The first Die maybe. Hard was. The newer ones were definitely into the yeah. 2000s. Oh, I don't know. Die Hard 1. That had to be like 1989 or something, right? Had to be. If it wasn't before that. Yeah. And and I only say that because they make such a big deal about it being the Christmas season and we can watch Die Hard now because that's a Christmas movie. Well, really, it's not. But sure, you can keep oh. telling yourself that. 
I think you've seen that on a meme or something on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure I have. Yeah, you know, shooting at the Nakatoma Center again, or whatever they call that. But <laughs> and I, I don't want to digress too far. But you know, Travis. So so introduce yourself a little bit to us. So uh, Travis Bosky, extension plant pathologist here at the University of Arkansas. So, uh, like Tom mentioned, uh, kind of um, uh, mirroring positions. Um, I do a lot of the, the row crop plant pathology work here. Most row crops, except for wheat and rice, and also the I guess uh, go-to guy for a lot of the peanut questions in the state. Uh, and that's only because uh, my grandfather was a peanut farmer, and so uh, I kind of know a little bit about peanuts. And also, about half of my program is uh, nematology-based. Uh, specifically southern root knot and reniform nematodes on cotton and soybean. And, and that's just because of my training with uh, Jim Starr at Texas A&M. And so one thing that's never going away is nematode issues. And, and I think that's been kind of a kind of revolving door conversation with people. Uh, even before this podcast this morning, I had two phone calls about nematode questions. Well, and I think you mentioned that those problems aren't going away. I th- definitely they're not, and we're not pumping people out of universities fast enough to plug into some of the holes that we have when it comes to a nematode issue. Plenty of faculty are getting up there in their years, and goodness knows how we're going to replace some of those faculty as they start to retire. And in the years I've been at Mississippi, you know, I've even heard people say, oh, n- nematodes aren't a problem. And, and my comments usually, well, if you go looking for them, they're there. They're a problem. We're just not doing a good job looking for them. Yeah, I, I would agree with both comments. I mean, uh, several states, when the, 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 the nematologist or plant pathologist who did the nematology work retires, they're usually not replaced. Um, they're not as attractive of, of a project as some of the molecular work that's done on campus, but they're so essential to the issues. And especially for, for both you and I and, and the others in the Mid-South, um, it seems like every year I get the same question from farmers. Are they getting worse? Is it getting worse? Why is it getting worse? And, and because they're starting to recognize the problem. And, and um, I'm afraid we're kind of behind the curve, too, from churning out people that can develop programs to answer some of the, even the fundamental questions about you know, nematology, nematode research, how to screen for it, how to test for it, and even what they look like and where they're at. Travis, Dr. Kirkpatrick was a nematologist in Arkansas for a long, long time. Did a lot of work on my dad's place over the years, different different projects that they worked on together. So you didn't technically replace him, correct? No, I, I did not. So uh, Terry recently retired a couple of years ago now, and I came on board before that. So I'm not really sure who I replaced. I just fit that role as the extension plant pathologist. And then Terry's role has not been replaced. That position, again, uh, one of those that either um, I've done too good of a job by picking up on some of those projects uh, or seeing the need and filling that. But no, I did not uh, replace Terry Kirkpatrick. I don't think anybody could do that. And I suspected that was going to be your answer, and, and maybe that's why I asked it, because you had made the comment about not replacing those guys. And, and you're correct. He, is, he was a phenomenal 
nematologist for for sure, but then just an all around super intelligent guy. I mean, he knew a, a lot about a lot of things. When I was in school, I had several conversations with him about various different things, and always came away from it pretty much feeling like an idiot because uh, he's way smarter than I ever could have dreamed of being. Well, and the one thing, there's probably not a lot of people that know this, and I don't think Terry would be real bothered by my mentioning this, but, you know, many, many years ago, I think Terry would tell you the story that the whole reason he got turned on to nematology and extension and research and working for the university was Billy Moore gave a presentation somewhere, and if I'm not mistaken, it may have been in North Carolina, and Terry just happened to be in the audience and said, you know, I really liked what he had to say and thought it was important work and, and got even more interested in that. And that's not to say that he wasn't interested in it before, but I think he really felt passionate about it even more after that point in time. I'm not exactly sure why he got into it. I'm sure glad he did because I, too, learned a lot from him. And I still learn a lot from him. Uh, he's he's uh, one of the top guys on my uh, list of phone numbers to call <laughs> in an emergency and still, he's that kind of guy. He'll still answer and, and help me out in that time of need. So uh, and, certainly do enjoy him. And the bad part about his departure is he's one of the only people in this part of the world that was doing any soybean cyst nematode race typing or any of that work that, that is going to remain extremely important. And I don't, I don't see that any of us that are the younger faculty are going to be able to pick that up and kind of fill that void. No, there's there's too many other voids to fill, and and you know as well as I do, you get a great idea, you think I'm going to go that direction, then you get torn two other different directions, and you're like, I don't even know what I started out with, you know, if if that was soybean cyst. So, to me, in in, in our area, root knot becomes such a dramatic test on soybeans that it's hard to really focus on any of the others because it's the uh, you know, it's really the elephant in the room when you talk about nematode issues in, in, in cotton or soybeans. So it, it tends to stand alone, in my opinion. Well, why don't y'all take a minute and just tell folks kind of what the status is of, of nematodes in our two you know, respective states. And just so we kind of get a, a sense of, of how severe the problem is, I'm just going to sit over here and make sure nothing messes <laughs> up on the recording because that's going to be about the extent of my contribution, kind of like when we talk to Trey, last summer, Tom, I, I'm not a lot I can do here, but I'll make sure it gets recorded well. Tom, you want me to take a stab at it first? Or? Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. That's just what I was going to suggest. You know, of course, there's a lot of plant parasitic nematodes in all of our agricultural fields. Uh, a lot of times farmers get their soil sample report back and they're like, what is stunt? What is a lesion? What is, you know, what are all these others doing? And, um, you know, there's not enough of us. We've already talked about that to really address what's going on with those nematodes. But but the three main yield-limiting plant pathogenic nematodes would be uh, in, in, in order, I think, of importance, and I'm including that the main crops of cotton and soybean is probably root knot at the top, close by reniform. If you're a cotton farmer, reniform is probably your, your worst enemy. And then in, in soybean, soybean cyst. Certainly, root knot has probably been more problematic because everything we grow in the Mid-South is a host. Cotton, corn, soybean, grain sorghum are all hosts to the southern root knot nematode. So we're, we're never, you know, one of the management tactics what is to, to rotate out of it, and, and we don't do that. 
with at least reniform, we can plant corn or grain sorghum, and, and that'll kind of reduce some of it. But, you know, that is one of the toughest nematodes as far as survival from one location to the other. Um, and so it tends to not go away, and, and neither do the nematodes at all. I mean, even you rotate out a couple of years, you may not be able to detect them with a soil sample, and then you plant a susceptible host, and those numbers are right back up. Um, as, as quick as they dropped off, they're, they're back up to the level they started at. But so I would say those three. Tom, am I missing any that, uh, that you see uh, here of in Mississippi? No, I, I, would, I would echo that statement. I, I do think those are the three most important nematodes, even on our side of the river. Um, you know, lots of times I really question how big of an issue soybean cyst nematode is just because of the, the number of places that I've seen it. I can count pretty much on two hands, and it's not as, as common, I think, for whatever reason. Although some of the field situations we have run across it, it remains uh, a pretty big concern for, for soybean farmers in those specific, specific geographies. The one thing I did really want to point out, and the questions that I get commonly, nematodes are definitely a bigger concern in your lighter soils, and they do definitely change, you know, along the river. And we are running across a lot more root knot in Mississippi, especially as we've transitioned from the bulk of, of our cotton production system into soybean. And then I think the, the general concern about, or not necessarily concern, but the... Um, the confusion about corn, that corn can be a yeah. dramatic host for root knot nematode, and it's not what would be considered a true rotational host to reduce those numbers. And you may not necessarily see the impact of the nematode on the plant throughout the growing season, uh, probably due to the fibrous roots and just the general root structure system of a corn plant. But you can blow those nematode numbers up so then in a subsequent season when you plant either corn or soybean, you do see more dramatic impact on those particular hosts. And then reniform is, is like you mentioned, the one that it's not going away. It's, it's definitely built to be a hardy pest. It dives deep in the soil, so it's problematic from a standpoint of, of um, having issues when there's not necessarily a preferred host present. And it, it definitely affects a lot of our cotton acres uh, in any of those areas that um, folks are producing cotton and especially continuous cotton can definitely be impacted more with root knot and reniform. Um, and then, like I mentioned, the soybean cyst is, is kind of a head scratcher some years. That reniform seems to be, I know you and I've had this conversation, especially in cotton, that the, the numbers keep coming up and up and up. And, uh, you know, some of these soils can, can have some huge populations. But one thing that's always impressed me, you know, about that that species in itself is just its ability to survive even dry conditions. I've had farmers say, you know, it's it's dry. We're in a drought. We must be doing some damage to those nematodes. Unfortunately, not. I've actually had a, a field I was I was planting in, and and this was a reniform field in, in Jefferson County, Arkansas. We finished planting, brought the planter back, parked it underneath the shed. And three months later, I went out and I said, you know, I wonder if I could actually recover nematodes from the soil that was on that planter. And I found this great big clod that was that was left on the planter. I came in and took a hammer and smashed it up and put it in a uh, um, a pan to, to allow the, the, the nematodes to move through. And I was surprised. I found one female. After three months, 
you know, it's just amazing to me. Um, I wish I had a metabolism like a nematode. I didn't need to eat for three months. Man, I could really lose some weight, man, and I could really enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas and never gain a pound. Well, and, you know, the one thing I think we circle back to throughout the season, and I know we talk about, you know, via text or even on the phone sometimes, is just best times of the year for soil sampling and how should farmers consider that? Farmers or consultants or retailers, what should they be considering and how should they focus on some of those areas and fields that maybe uh, more problematic and definitely prone to a nematode issue and what should they do to collect a soil sample? You know, I, I get lots of questions about that and I'm sure you do too. Yeah. You know, and, and I usually have a very similar story for them. The, the first one to me, the, the, uh, the main step is, you know, you're, you're taking a predictive sample at the end of the season. You're kind of trying to predict what kind of a problem you might have next year and what kind of management tactics you want to take. So the easiest time to take a predictive sample is when you can walk through the field. So if corn, it's after it's been cut. And, and even after it's tilled up, I'm okay with that. You know, if you're within a, a six months after, that's, that's still fine. You're going to get a pretty good idea of the population there. And, and using uh, some type of a pattern to say either it's a zigzag pattern, but, you know, dividing that field into 20-acre quadrants is, is a, probably about as big as I would go. Uh, most farmers or consultants know their problematic areas, and, and maybe that's by a, a soil texture zone. And overlaying a soil texture map over those areas may be better than dividing up in quadrants and, and sampling in uh, by soil texture would, would be another option. But the first and foremost thing is, is taking that sample. You know, you, you wouldn't determine what fertility to use next year based on one sample in the field, right? Well, well, don't base your management on nematodes based on one sample either. So you're, you're going to need multiple samples in that field to give you an idea of what that population is doing and, and how that's changing over time. And, and I usually say every three to four years, although I know some consultants and farmers, uh, I talk to them, we've, we've gone through this conversation and I said, well, when's the last time you sampled? Ah, that was 20, 30 years ago. Well, a lot can change in 20, 30 years. But Tom, I don't know about you, but I actually use just the, the fertility probe, you know, the, the uh, three quarter inch oak field soil probe with the little foot piece on it. It's easy to carry um, and it's, it's easy to use. And it actually has a little hash mark there at, at six inches. So I at least try to get it past that when I'm taking uh, samples, soil samples in the fall. Um, I use a two gallon bucket and, and beat the probe against that bucket. And uh, usually about 15 cores, if you get to six to eight inches, is about a pint of soil, as a general rule. And, and for our lab, the, the one in, in Hope, uh, Arkansas, they, they usually use about a fifth of a pint. So, you know, you're only going to add more cost by sending two gallons. So just, just send a pint, or, or what I usually recommend to folks is something about the size of your fist. Of course, you want to put that soil sample in a, in a plastic bag, not a paper sack, not a tissue sample bag, you know, but a plastic bag and, and be sure you can reference back to whatever that sample, wherever it's located at. And then getting those sent off as, as soon as possible uh, to the diagnostic lab. And uh, as a general rule, always use the same lab. Um, I actually recently had samples that I split between two labs. The one that I paid more for, um, I actually got more nematodes. 
uh, and the one I paid less for, there was fewer nematodes. Both of them were above the damage threshold, so it really didn't matter at that point. But but the point remains is that you want to be able to send it to the same lab time and time again because they're going to run the same process, that same assay, so you can have, you know, you're kind of comparing apples and apples then instead of going from one extreme to the other. And, um, you know, protecting those samples, you know, when I was going through at Texas A&M, we would talk about protecting them like you would milk. And I don't know where that came from other than, you're talking about a living organism, but I don't know about you, but um, I'm not going to drink milk that I would just leave in an ice chest from morning until night. I would probably put it on ice, but do not, I repeat, do not put nematode soil samples on ice. Basically, all you want to do is you want to keep them in the same type of condition from where you pulled them out of. So if that soil was 60 degrees, keep them at 60 degrees. Keep them in an ice chest, keep them cool. I usually pour mine out on the floor of a shop that's air conditioned, and that's perfect for keeping them cool over the weekend and uh, shipping them off on a Monday. I never ship anything off on a Thursday or Friday because they're going to sit on some truck somewhere, and uh, they're not going to be in the right type of conditions when you uh, actually send them to the lab. So, you know, Tom, that's that's my usual typical spiel when it comes to uh, those assays. Anything I forgot? No. I mean, the only thing I tell folks is, is you know, definitely be careful with them. Don't put them on the dash. Don't keep them in a hot truck. Keep them out of the sunlight. You know, and, and I think we all do do things a little bit different. And I've, and I've even heard some of the more classically trained nematologists say the same thing you have, that basically inside an air conditioned building is, is acceptable for those nematodes to survive in there. Heck, I mean, we, we shove almost all of ours in either a cold room or a refrigerator just because we typically don't deal with them fast enough. And it, I don't see that we've had an issue with that. Although reconsidering that we, we might want to change some of that just for longer term storage methods because they they can get stressed out and any of those things they're they're going to croak pretty easily the soil probe we've taken to using we use whatever that one is that's got the kind of the alligator opening that um you stick in the ground to six inches and then open i like those the best Um, and i can't remember who sells those you can find them on the internet and they're like 125 or 150 bucks a piece and usually i tell people buy two because if you're like me you may get frustrated with one and you're going to end up needing a second one around or that tip falls off for for the oak field ones and then you're out there with with a uh, a pro with no tip and uh there's nothing harder to get into some of these soils is uh one of those without that tip it just it doesn't work very well (laughs) at all the other thing I might add to that, you mentioned to me about the, the conditions, and, and this has happened to me, is, uh, you know, rain showers coming, and the guy says, I'm going to go out there either before or after, and, and I always recommend get out there before that rain, uh, especially if the, uh, uh, the ground is not saturated. If, if you put that soil sample in a plastic bag and there's water accumulating in the corner, stop. Don't even don't even waste your time with the rest of the day of sampling. Those are going to be too saturated, and, and the nematodes will die. It, it's amazing how easily they'll die in a plastic bag, and then you can't get them to die in the field. But that's just the nature <laughs> of the beast. Travis, you mentioned sampling in the fall. Is that the optimum time? Just say, just like you're doing 
fertility soil samples is the fall the optimum time to do it for making plans for the following crop year? Yes, it is. A couple of reasons for that. You, you do have that time to, to allow that assay to be processed, get it back, and to be able to make decisions about the next season. But the real reason we, we tell folks to sample at that time is that the, the nematode population density in the soil for the plant parasitic nematodes are typically going to be the highest at that point. So there's kind of a peak there. And uh, going out and sampling in the spring, usually they're at their lowest numbers. And over the summer, they, they pick back up, reproducing on that host. And then right at harvest is, is typically where they kind of peak. And they, they stay there for, you know, several, several weeks. And, and, you know, if you go back in and you sample and you're, you know, two weeks off, but you're the same time after harvest, that's perfect. You just don't want to be sampling in, you know, September and say, oh, I'm going to go out and sample in December, you know, trying to keep those close. But those are the main reasons why that if you're going to find a plant parasitic nematode, sampling in the fall is when you're going to, to find it for sure. And that's why we tell folks to go out at that time. Well, and then the bulkier economic thresholds are so dependent on those nematode numbers at this point in the year. And I think that definitely gives you better guidance then for what you're planning on doing in a subsequent season. Um, and most yes. states, you know, just about every state has one of those online, pretty easily Google, Googleable the economic thresholds for plant parasitic nematodes by crop. And then you really have to know how much soil is used in that assay dependent upon which lab is there because the bulk of those economic thresholds are based on a per pint uh, basis, unless I think South Carolina's is a little different. And I don't remember if they use 200 cc's or 300 cc's. I can't remember what their numbers are. Yeah, that's a good point. I think some of them I've seen at 100, some at 250, and then you're right, some of them are at a pint. So that's an, an important factor to consider. Uh, it's not that hard to uh, do the calculation, but uh, without doing that, you could be certainly developing the wrong program in the wrong field. So good point. Well, and then the, the last thing I would add on that, everybody has to remember that the numbers that you extract from soil are essentially an estimate. You're not getting everything. You're counting what's on that little counting dish. And I don't think we talk about that enough. It's kind of, it's another one of those strange, boring plant pathology things that plant pathologists are weird and they do things so strangely, but you have a dish that has a diagonal on it. And as the nematodes land or accumulate within that diagonal, you count what's along the diagonal, and then you use a blow-up number that actually gets you that, that number that you have on the report. But, I mean, everybody should just know, if there's a lot of nematodes present, then the number's going to be high. <laughs> so if there aren't a lot of nematodes present or there are no nematodes present, then they're typically not problematic. Uh, and then I usually tell folks in any presentation, I think a pint of soil at our laboratory, they basically consider that to be 473 cc's of soil. So if you know that, you can do a little bit of math backwards or forwards then dependent upon how much they use at each laboratory within a given assay. Yeah, and each lab may may ask for different quantities. So so calling ahead is a good idea. And, and when you said, Tom, that, there was no nematodes in that sample. It really made me think about, you know, if, if you're a consultant or farmer and you said, hey, I've, I've always sampled this field and it's always had nematodes and I've, I've submitted this sample this past year and there were none, 
I, I'd really question, you know, how that uh, that sample may have been taken care of either in the field or on the way to the lab, because there should be something in those if you if you've had experience with the past. So, uh, and again, that's the reason for multiple samples in a field, right? Instead of just the one. So uh, again, you're, yeah, you're right on the averages. You're, so it takes several of them to kind of get an idea of, of what your need is and what, uh, what changes might need to be made in your program. All right. Just to recap, we need a sample that's approximately a pint of soil, give or take a little bit, not a humongous sample, but not a tiny sample either collected from the six to eight inch depth with a normal soil probe. Keep that sample room temperature just to put a number, a ballpark to that. And Travis, you mentioned the the lab with the U of A, which is in Hope. Uh, Tom, where do samples from Mississippi go? Samples of Mississippi go to the Plant Disease and Nematode Diagnostic Laboratory in Starkville. Okay. Are there private labs that perform a service of quantifying nematodes? A&L does, and then I think... Pettit may actually offer a nematode count as well, or they just started to do that, if I'm not mistaken. And outside of those two, Travis may be aware of some others. I really don't. We, uh, we've really plugged ours in the state mostly, so that's my go-to. And, uh, and some of them, Tom, you guys may be, be doing that too, depending on the crop. Some of the uh, promotion boards have also, to encourage people sample, have, uh, have said, hey, we're, we're going to use some of that funding and and pay for some of those samples too so uh nothing's better than free and i think we're still offering that uh, for the arkansas farmer if they're sending you know soybean samples uh to the lab are you guys doing anything along that lines yet or planning to in the future we are too and, and i just can't okay. recall off the top of my head how much longer that is what the duration is but i think it's a great opportunity for folks to find out what they have and use that number for something predictively for the next season at least to determine what they need to do but with that said um, we really appreciate the time travis that's super important information and i think something that a lot of us discuss, and we probably don't spend near the time at county meetings talking about it some years because I think there's so many other questions that seem to be more of more burning importance depending upon what county you're in um, or what meeting it's at. So we definitely appreciate the time. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It was uh, great to discuss, and I agree. I get the question every year about sampling, and some people just need a nice refresher. So hopefully this helps. Appreciate it, Travis. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.